This morning we come to the end of 1 Peter, and if you've been following along at all as we've gone through this, you'll have noticed this is a very focused letter. Some of the New Testament letters deal with a wide variety of topics, a whole load of different issues, but this letter keeps to just one basic point. It was set out in the very first verse of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter told us, as Christians, we are elect exiles. We are special to God, and we are strangers in this world. We're strangers to this world because we're special to God. This world, in general, rejects God. And so those who belong to God will never quite fit in. Sometimes that will be more noticeable, sometimes it will be less noticeable. But as God's people, we will never cease to be exiles until Christ returns. That's the main point of the letter. And Peter has developed it by, first of all, encouraging us, teaching us just how special we are to God. Peter has also worked to prepare us for the uncomfortable experience of being aliens and strangers in this world. And Peter has given us instruction about how to live as elect exiles. And we could sum up that instruction as continue to do good. Whatever other people around you do, you be respectful to everyone, do good deeds, and be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have. And now as Peter brings his letter to a close, he gives us some final words to a chosen people. We'll read all of chapter 5. If you're using one of the church Bibles and you haven't found it yet, it's page 1220, and in the larger print Bibles, 1891. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world 
is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. And as this part of God's word finishes, it leaves us with four instructions. First, in verses 1 to 5, we are instructed to work for one another. Maybe our natural tendency is to work against each other. That's what we often see in organizations and in groups of people that get together. But it is not to be like that among God's people. The start of verse 1 actually has the word so or therefore. The NIV translators have chosen to leave out that little connecting word. But it's a helpful word because it shows that this follows on from the end of chapter 4. In that passage we saw that God's people are to expect fiery ordeals. We're to expect that life will get uncomfortable at times because of our commitment to Jesus. And that reality is what prompts Peter to give these instructions in chapter 5. So for each of these points that we're going to look at, we could introduce each one by saying, because fiery ordeals are part of the Christian life, we must do this. So here it's because fiery ordeals are part of the Christian life, we must work for one another. Peter is going to speak to the whole church fellowship in these verses. But he starts by speaking to the leaders of the church, known in the New Testament as elders. In verse 1, to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. When Peter calls himself a witness of Christ's sufferings, I don't think he's talking about being an eyewitness to Jesus' life and death. He was an eyewitness, and he'll talk about that in 2 Peter. But here he just calls himself a witness, meaning someone who brings a message. In this case, it's the message of Christ's suffering and what that suffering means. Peter has brought that message in this letter. He told us Jesus died to redeem us from an empty way of life. Jesus died to pay for our sin and bring us to God. On the cross, Jesus bore our sins in his own body so we could begin a new life, no longer slaves to sin. This letter is part of Peter doing his job as a witness to Christ. He's bringing us the message of Christ's suffering and what it means. 
And here in verse 1, he calls himself a fellow elder to show this work of being a witness is part of every elder's responsibility. In fact, this is something every Christian is called to do. But elders are to set an example in this. They're to be at the forefront of it. And certainly they're to be witnesses to unbelievers about Christ's sufferings. But the primary audience they're to witness to is God's people. When God's people are facing fiery ordeals, when they're facing hostility for the sake of Christ, what they need from their church leaders is not funny stories to cheer them up. What they need is not the preacher's reflections on what he's seen on Netflix in the past week. What God's people need from their leaders is the message of Jesus. Not just what Jesus said, but also what he did. That he gave his life so we could have new life. That he rose so we could look forward to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Those are truths that every Christian knows. But we need to be reminded of those truths over and over and over again. We need those regular reminders because in our fiery ordeals, we have to hold on to those truths. So whatever else elders must do, they must keep the cross and the resurrection and the return of Christ fresh in our minds. And Peter says, alongside being witnesses, elders are to be shepherds. In verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Notice the elders are not caring for their own flock. The flock is God's. In verse 3, Peter will say, God has entrusted his flock to the care of elders in local churches. And that gives elders a pretty serious responsibility. They're to do what shepherds do, Peter says. They're to actively watch over the flock. Working to shield the flock from attack. Working to pull the flock back from danger. Walking with the flock as they go through dark valleys. Feeding the flock on the green pastures of God's word. So they can be refreshed and strengthened for the journey. The true shepherd doesn't work for his own advantage. The true shepherd is not focused on himself. But Peter knows very well not every leader behaves like a shepherd. And he mentions three sins elders can very easily fall into. There are plenty of other sins, of course, but these are three classic sins of church leaders. The first one is in the middle of verse 2. Elders are to watch over the flock, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. In other words, don't do your work grudgingly. Don't act like a martyr who's got the short end of the stick. Always whining about how tough it is. 
Church leaders can get like that. But Peter says, embrace the privilege you have. Sure, it is a serious responsibility. It can feel like a heavy responsibility at times. But Peter says, make the choice to willingly and joyfully serve God by leading his flock. At the end of verse 2, Peter warns against another sin. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Now certainly it's possible for church leaders to get involved in fraud and embezzlement. It does happen sometimes. But I think Peter has in mind a less spectacular kind of dishonest gain. He's talking about treating church ministry as an easy way to earn an income. Now, not all elders are supported financially by the church. But those who are, they're supported so they can give their time to church ministry instead of working in other paid employment. The idea was never that elders would pick up paychecks and then spend their time dossing around. But it can happen. In the 19th century, many young men in England joined the clergy, even though they had no serious Christian commitment. Why did they do it? Because many parishes had big parsonages. They had big houses for the minister to live in. And those big houses had large grounds where the minister could spend his days if he wanted, shooting, fishing, collecting butterflies. People did that. Those young men looked on the pastorate as a way to pursue their hobbies while having a safe and secure income. Believe it or not, as a young man, Charles Darwin seriously considered becoming a church minister so he could get on with his scientific research in peace. Now I realize not many church situations are like that anymore. And they wouldn't have been like that among Peter's first readers either. But whatever the circumstances, there's always the temptation for pastors to be defrauding the church in the way that they use their time. Peter says, don't do that. It's dishonest gain. Instead, he says, be eager to serve. Not eager to get paid while you do your best to avoid serving. The third potential sin is in verse 3. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Church leaders are not to be little dictators. They're not to be harsh in their exercise of authority. They're not to use intimidation and manipulation. Wayne Grudem brings out the contrast Peter is talking about. He says, An elder greedy for power over others will domineer, delighting in the use of his authority and seeking to increase, preserve, or flaunt it. By contrast, the elder who seeks not his own status, but the edification of others, will strive continually to make his life an example to others. A pattern to imitate. 
If we think back for a moment to when Peter dealt with husbands and wives back in chapter 3, in that passage, he took it for granted that husbands were to lead in their family. He did not tell husbands, however, to let their family know who's boss. No, he said, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect. Be sensitive to the fact that by submitting to you, your wives have voluntarily put themselves in a vulnerable position. And remember, Peter said, there is absolutely no difference in the man and woman standing before God. There's absolutely no difference in their importance or dignity or their status with God. They're both equally heirs to the gracious gift of life. That's what Peter said to husbands. And here he takes the same approach when he speaks to church leaders. He takes it for granted there will be leaders in the church. But their approach to leadership is to be one of service not exploitation. They are to be examples of faithful service to God. They are not to be tyrants. Because in the end, the flock does not belong to church leaders. It belongs to God. And in the end, the shepherds and the flock stand on exactly the same level before God. In verse 4, Peter reminds us, church leaders and church members are all under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And yes, he says, faithful leaders will be rewarded, but they're not to seek that reward here and now. He says that will all be taken care of when Christ appears, meaning when Christ returns to this earth. what Peter has to say to elders. But then in verse 5, Peter turns to the rest of the church and he calls the church fellowship to submit to their elders. Specifically, he says, those who are younger are to submit to their elders. Now that is still referring to church leaders, not simply older people in the church. And it just reflects the fact that often those in church leadership will be those who are older. It's not a rule. It's not automatic that those who are older are more qualified to lead. If you read Paul's letters to Timothy, you'll find him reassuring Timothy that he, Timothy, was qualified, despite his youth. But it's true that often church leaders will be older than many of those they're leading. And having just told leaders to exercise their authority in a way that serves the flock, now Peter tells the flock to recognize that leaders have authority. Again, when we looked at families back in chapter 3, we saw that God has set structures of authority in place. And it's true, those in positions of authority can end up misusing and abusing that authority. But it's the abuse of authority that's bad, not the authority itself. And the same applies in the church. The church is not to be a dictatorship. But, according to the New Testament, it's not to be a democracy either. 
It should not be the case in the church that the majority opinion automatically carries the day. The church is to be led by God's word. Not by the most popular point of view. So when the New Testament calls the church to choose leaders, it gives careful guidelines for the kind of leaders the church is to choose. They're to be men who will lead according to God's word. And this is relevant to every single one of us. Not just those who are elders or who will be elders someday. This is relevant to all of us because everyone who's a church member is involved in choosing elders. And having chosen the elders, the church members are then involved in submitting to those elders. So we need to be clear on what kind of elders we're to have. Obviously, these verses don't say all there is to say about elders, but they're a very good start. The Bible's blueprint for church life is a beautiful thing. But Peter knows if it's going to be beautiful in practice, then we need to work for one another, not against one another. And so in the middle of verse 5, He says, all of us must clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So leaders are to have the humility to lead in a way that serves the flock rather than serving themselves. And those being led are to have the humility to submit to their leaders, even though everyone knows those leaders are flawed and sometimes they can be pretty, pretty frustrating. As God's people, we will face ridicule and maybe even hostility from this world. We will go through fiery ordeals. Therefore, Peter says, we must be committed to working for one another rather than against one another as God's people. God has given us to one another to help one another. Our relationships in the church, they are not supposed to be fiery ordeals for us. And we can avoid that happening by clothing ourselves with humility towards one another. We must also learn to lean on God. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. People have often pointed a finger at Christianity and they've said, it's just a crutch. It's for people who can't deal with life's difficulties by themselves. And in answer to that, we should always say, you bet it's a crutch. Of course I can't deal with life's difficulties by myself. And then we can go on to ask people, 
What's your crutch? Because all of us are trying to lean on something. As Christians, we should have no hesitation at all in admitting that we desperately need God. We are created beings. We are dependent on our Creator. And we're fools to try and deny that. Those who do deny it, well, they have to look for other crutches to lean on. And those other crutches always prove to be inadequate. They cannot carry the weight of our problems and our difficulties and our anxieties. People like to quote that poem about being the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. But that is just a grand self-deception. None of us can control our future any more than we can control the motions of the planets. We are not as strong as we sometimes like to think we are. The Bible calls us just to admit that. But it does not call us to lie down under our inadequacies. We're called in the Bible to live our lives boldly with confidence in the power and strength of our God. Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And he does not mean go about proclaiming what a worm you are. He doesn't mean curl up in a ball and convince yourself that you're good for nothing. That is not what it means to humble ourselves before God. No, Peter explains what it means. We humble ourselves by leaning on him. By casting all our anxieties on him because we know he cares for us. Humility before God does not mean self-flagellation. Like those folk in the Middle Ages who'd stand in freezing cold water and beat themselves with sticks. We don't do that anymore, but the equivalent today is to always be droning on about how useless we are. That's not what it means to humble ourselves before God. It means we recognize the simple fact that we are completely dependent on him. And we set aside our desires for personal power and personal prestige. We get on with serving God, leaning the full weight of our lives on him. Taking every burden to him. Turning every worry over to him. Asking for his strength for every new challenge. Looking to him to supply our every daily need. Thank God we don't have to face fiery trials on our own. Both individually and as a family of believers, we can face them by leaning on our God. He is big enough, his shoulders are broad enough, he's wise enough and he's loving enough to support us through every fiery trial. Then in verses 8 and 9, Peter turns from our greatest friend to our greatest enemy. 
He calls us to resist the devil. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing strong in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the whole world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. We live in a culture that has largely given up believing in the devil. And if he gets a mention at all, he's portrayed as a slick, smartly dressed gent who'll help you to have fun. But the Bible insists on a very different reality when it comes to the devil. It tells us the devil is alive and kicking, but he certainly isn't the naughty but nice guy he'd like you to think he is. The Bible says he's an enemy bent on destruction. He knows he's beaten. He's known that since Jesus died and rose. But the Bible says that just makes him all the more filled with fury because he knows his time is short. The devil knows he has no future. So he's not trying to build anything. He has no long-term plans He's just trying to do as much damage as he can before he lands in the eternal fire prepared for him and his angels. And as Christians, we are to live with both of those truths in mind. The devil is real, so he's not to be underestimated. And the devil is defeated, so he is not to be feared. Peter brings those truths together in verses 8 and 9. He says, be alert, be sober. The devil is not a joke. He's on the prowl. You cannot afford to play around with your commitment to God. And at the same time, Peter says, you don't need to worry about the devil. You don't need to cower in fear of him. Resist him. Defy him. And significantly, Peter tells us how we are to defy the devil. He does not suggest we're to go around casting the devil out. Now, there may well be a need for that on occasions. But Peter does not present that as our standard approach to the devil. In verse 9, he says, we resist the devil by standing firm in the faith. So the way to defy the devil is not by focusing on the devil. We defy him by focusing on Jesus Christ. The risen Son of God who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That's what Peter told us at the end of chapter 3. We resist the devil by keeping our eyes on the one who has conquered the devil. We resist the devil by committing ourselves to our faithful creator and continuing to do good. That's what Peter told us at the end of chapter 4. So don't underestimate the devil. His existence reminds us the Christian life is a serious business. But don't fear the devil either. Live your life for the one who has conquered the devil. 
That is the only way to be safe from the devil. Outside of Christ, you're fresh meat for the devil. In Christ, you're with the one who has the devil under his feet. And finally, as God's chosen people, look forward to eternal success. Peter has already mentioned the glory to be revealed in these verses. He's mentioned the crown of glory that will never fade away. And now he comes back to that in verses 10 and 11. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Throughout this letter, Peter has been very honest about suffering. If we live for Jesus, we will face suffering to some extent. And in verse 13, as he signs off at the very end of the letter, Peter says he's writing from Babylon. Now he is actually in Rome, but he's comparing that regime to ancient Babylon. In the Old Testament, Babylon was the world power of the day. In the New Testament, it was Rome. But the point is... Whatever era we live in, we are living in the equivalent of Babylon. We're surrounded by impressive earthly powers. And often those powers will take a dim view of God's people. So verse 10 says, yes, we may have to suffer a little while. And it may feel like a long while. It may last even the duration of your life. So Peter is not saying our suffering is going to be short in terms of days and weeks and months. He's saying compared to eternity, our suffering will be short. John Calvin said, Heaven makes light what before seemed to be heavy. Heaven makes brief and momentary what seemed to last forever. As Christians, we will often go through things that seem heavy. We'll go through what seems to be failure and defeat. The church of Jesus Christ will often look weak and frail and pathetic. But we live as God's people looking forward to eternal success. God the Father has promised it to us. God the Son died and rose so that promise could be fulfilled. And God the Holy Spirit rests on us as we live for God's glory. So the church cannot fail. As members of the church, our own lives cannot ultimately fail. Remember what Peter told us, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's special possession. So God himself will get us safely to our inheritance. We haven't earned any of that. It's God's gift to us. 
We receive it by putting our trust in Jesus. And then we can live confidently. We can continue to do good, working together, because we are sure of eternal success at the end of it all. That's what Peter leaves us with as he signs off on his letter. Let's pray. Father, as we finish looking at this letter, we want to learn the lessons of it. So we ask, will you give us a clearer view of who we are in Christ? Your chosen, precious people. Will you help us to believe the things that you say about us? And will you make us so secure in those truths that we are ready to live for you in every situation? Ready to trust you and obey you, whatever comes into our lives? As a church family, will you help us to work for one another, not against each other. Whether we lead or whether we submit to those who lead, will you help all of us to do it with humility? Serving one another, working for one another's good, working to glorify you, not ourselves. And will you help each one of us to resist the devil by leaning on you. Not believing what he tells us about ourselves. Not believing his promises to us. But leaning on you. Casting all our anxieties on you. Knowing that you care for us. Amen. We're going to close by remembering the eternal glory that is ahead of us. There is a day.